We are glad to make all of our Jcast Network podcasts free for our listeners. However, they are not free to produce and host. Please consider making a donation to Jcast Network to help support our work by visiting jcastnetwork.org slash donate. Thanks for your support. You are listening to Pop Torah with Rabbi Iznopf and Olitsky, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Welcome to Pop Torah, the podcast where we look at pop culture from a Jewish perspective and look at Judaism through the lens of pop culture. As always, we are your hosts. I am Rabbi Michael Knopf. And I am the Demogorgon, Rabbi Jesse Ulitsky. And as you can tell today, we are running up that hill. We are going to talk about... Man, that song slaps. (laughs) Um, We are going to talk about Stranger Things season four and really all things Stranger Things in this episode. So, uh, uh, you know, hop a ride on your Falcor, uh, um, get in your Millennium Falcon. We are diving into the 80s, diving into Stranger Things. Jesse, what is Stranger Things season four and Stranger Things all about for our listeners? Stranger Things was a a phenomenon uh, when it first came out on Netflix, really this set in the 80s, horror, thriller, suspense vibes. Um, It began with the disappearance of Will Byers uh, in Hawkins, Indiana, and introduced us to Eleven and the experiments that went on at Hawkins Labs. She ends up being a superhero, saves Will uh, from the Upside Down, which we'll talk about later, um, and, and destroys the, the Demogorgon who, who, who comes to Earth from the Upside Down, from this sort of dark dimension. Uh, the fourth season- the Demogorgon, uh, by the way, you know, a lot of the villains in the show uh, are named for uh, characters, figures from- D&D characters, Dragons, right. Which the, uh, which the main uh, boys in the show, Will and his friends, um, are, are big, you know, D&D uh, fans, you know, playing in the early 80s, uh, which highlights their, you know, nerdiness, their outsiderness. These are, these are dorky, you know, misfit kids. Or awesomeness, depending on how you look at right. it. Right. Um, season four takes place uh, in 1986, eight months after the events of, of the third season. Uh, all, full spoilers ahead. The third season takes place uh, with the destruction of the new Hawkins Mall. Um, third season where it led to believe that Hopper dies, except for that um, post credit scene at the end of season three. I think the, one of the biggest challenges with season four is season three came out right before the pandemic. Uh Production really stalled because of the pandemic. They were filming some in Lithuania, I think in Alaska. So season four came out this summer, four years, three years after season three came out. And so we were wondering if the hype train was still there. But uh, season four really focuses on three plot lines. The first plot line, which I would say is the main one, where these teenagers are mysteriously being killed, almost like exorcist style in Hawkins. Um, and there's this new leader of the, hell, of the Dungeons and Dragons 
Hawkins High Club, the Hellfire Club, Eddie Munson. He's introduced this year as this crew is now grown up in high school. I think this is going to be a big problem for the show going forward because of that three-year hiatus. They now look way too old for their age. You know, this is Dawson's Creek style, Beverly Hills 90210 style, where they're supposed to be 15-year-olds and and they look like they're in their 20s. It's because I'm old now. They, They look like teenagers to me. They're fine. They don't look 15. Um, but, but anyway, um, I don't know what 15 year olds look like anymore. (laughs) Eddie becomes the prime suspect uh, of this group and hunted down by, by Jason Carver, by the cool preppy varsity basketball team crew, uh, because they think Eddie killed Chrissy, who is Jason's girlfriend. Um, and you know, typical Reagan era eighties, they think that, uh, Dungeons and Dragons is this sort of satanic cult. The second plot line, uh, since the end of season three, um, the buyers, Will and Jonathan and Joyce with 11, because I think Hopper died, relocated to California. They have a new home in California. Um, and it's spring break. And so Mike goes to visit 11 and during everything that's going on in Hawkins, they start, uh, 11 gets captured. They drive from the West coast to the Midwest to try to save 11 and save their friends in Hawkins. And then this third sort of subplot. As as an aside there, 11 gets captured uh, because she assaults a popular girl who is picking on her 11 at this point, uh, at least believes that she no longer has her powers. She loses them at the end of season three. And and that, that's a plot introduces, uh, us to um, one of the great new characters of this show, Argyle, um, who, who is hilarious. Um, surf's the, up, uh, dude. Surf's up, dude. Um, and then the the third plot line subplot, which uh, really I struggled to get into, um, was surprise Hopper's still alive. He's in a Russian uh, prison and um, Joyce and Murray go to Alaska and then they take a plane from Alaska to Russia, to Russia, find him, help him escape from the prison. But then they escape back to the prison to fight the Demogorgon that the Russians have captured in the prison because fighting the Demogorgon in Russia will help Eleven and her uh, piggybacking into Max's mind to uh, fight Vecna in the upside down. And there you have it. Season four. Uh, as as uh, you can tell, there's a lot going on in season four. And, and of course, uh, one of the things that made the show so popular and so beloved um, is that it is replete with uh, with, with uh, 80s references, both uh, obvious and, and deep cuts. You have, uh, you know, the music uh, prominently in this series. You have uh, Kate Bush's uh, Running Up That Hill um, or, or did, Deal did, With God. Did you, did you know that song, Mike? I didn't. I didn't know Kate Bush, and I didn't know that song either until. Man, uh, she must be making a boatload. She wrote this song. She recorded it herself. She produced it herself. She performed it herself, and maybe it was a it was a hit in the eighties. I had never heard it before. Listen, became, you know, I was I was born in eighty three. You were born in what in eighty four? Yeah. So the song I think came out in eighty four. Uh, by the time we were, you know, of music listening age, it was it was uh, probably not all that popular anymore. 
Sure, but but I listen to 80s songs all the time, 80s hits, and this has yeah. never showed up. This is now constantly on the Spotify and Apple Music yeah. Yeah. Uh, top today's hit yeah. pop songs. And and she is making a ton of money in those residuals, you right. know, four decades later. It, it really, it really catapulted her back uh, you know, to the to the top of the charts, uh, which is which is incredible. Uh, and she's uh at, at the the last episode had a great scene with Metallica's uh, classic Master of Puppets um, uh, in, in probably, as they say in the show, one of the most metal moments ever, uh, where uh, uh, Eddie and Dustin are in the Upside Down uh, trying to distract these Demogorgon bats um, away from uh, away from the other characters who are trying to um, attack Vecna in a in a place of weakness for him, uh, and uh, and so they you know get on top of a, a mobile home, uh, plug into an amp, and just shred Master of Puppets in order to distract the bats. Um, uh, just just so great great eighties music, Stephen King references, Nightmare on Elm Street references. Um, uh, I love the working at Family Video. I love I love that. I used to go there all the time. Every day after school, we'd walk to the family video by us. Yeah. Star Wars reference. Uh, really the whole the whole bit. So uh, let's let's just talk about impressions, Jesse. Um, uh, what do you think of season four? And, uh, you know, have you been following Stranger Things throughout? I love Stranger Things. Um, I I loved the first three seasons. I actually thought um, each season it, it got better and better. I love the mall season, season three. I thought it was fun uh, and, and suspenseful. Um, I thought season four sort of started out slow for me. I did not love the 11 stuff uh, with Dr. Brenner and what they were trying to do. All these flashbacks um, in the lab, introducing us to Henry and all that stuff. And then the big payoff was, was the finale of volume one of season four, right? When it was revealed that Henry was actually one who was actually Vecna. And that was sort of mind blowing because it tied everything together. It seemed like you had these different subplots going on at the same time and tied together. And then blows your mind is actually when we find out during volume two that there's uh, a, a deep relationship between that and everything that happened before. All the, the mind flayer stuff, the Demogorgon stuff, that was all Vecna, right? That was all one. And it was all a ripple effect consequence of this initial standoff that Eleven had with one, sending him into this upside down uh, hell-like worlds uh, and helping us understand that our actions have consequences. Uh, I, I think the season four finale also uh, it is a real cliffhanger, which doesn't leave much optimism, right? Season one ended, all right, Will is saved. And then he spits out that Demogorgon bug from his mouth and he flashes it upside down for a second and we say, oh, everything's not as great, but he was saved. Uh, here, th there, there is no great, right? That, that everybody's leaving Hawkins because it's a disaster zone. And it looks like uh, the, the four gates of hell have converged there. Although Max didn't die, she's in a coma, so maybe they can't fully open up. But it, it's certainly ready for the final showdown. Um, and be very interesting to see what happens in Stranger Things 5, which uh, the Duffer brothers say is the fifth and final season of Stranger Things. What about you, Mike? Yeah, so I was, you know, uh, like like a lot of people, you know, really, uh, I really loved Stranger Things when it first came out. Um, you know, got hooked on it. 
Um, it, it is now, I think, Netflix's most uh, watched show. I think they've logged a billion watched hours of, of Stranger Things, which is insane. Uh, and, you know, those, those first three seasons I, I thought were great. I, you know, I uh, gobbled them up when they came out. And I have to say, you know, I, I basically forgot about Stranger Things after season three, you know, uh, in the like 20 years of the pandemic that we've been living through uh, and, you know, so much other content that's out there. Um, I, I honestly, you know, hadn't thought much about Stranger Things since the last uh, since season three uh, ended. And when when I heard that season four was coming out, really just uh, a few days before it dropped, um, I thought to myself, wait, I thought that Stranger Things was done, you know? And so I wasn't like primed for more Stranger Things and I had to get into it. I do agree with you, Jesse. I think that there was, you know, a, a, a lot of subplot with uh, Eleven uh, getting her powers back um, that I thought was bloat. Um, it turns out that, um, that that Netflix, first of all, Netflix uh, um, is struggling. This is a whole meta conversation that you and I have been having about um, about the the disruption of streaming um, and and uh, you know whether there's a reckoning coming for streaming. And it seems like there is, is in some ways. Uh, Netflix um, is uh, you know struggling to to regain its uh, footing uh, on top of this industry that it created, basically. Um, and so, you know, wanted to save itself with Stranger Things, pumped a lot of money into the season. You can see it all on the screen. I mean, the Duffer Brothers did a great job, um, but the season is kind of bloated, I think, for that reason. Um, you know, every episode is over an hour. I think every episode is over an hour long. At least most episodes are over an hour long. These last two episodes that form the second part of season four are, I think, an hour and a half and two hours, respectively. Yeah, you, um, you, you and I were surprised initially when that the second part volume two of season four was only two episodes but each episode was a full-length movie right so so there was just a lot uh, of it uh, you know it was fine I mean you know it, it for the most part it it captivated me it kept me uh, uh, hooked in but there were definitely you know uh, elements that like they could have trimmed if they wanted to trim um, but they I think needed to justify the the budget that they were spending on it, you could see it again all up there on screen. Uh, but there were, but there, there, there were definitely uh, points in which it it sagged. Um, but that said, I, I, you know, I, I enjoyed the ride of season four. Um, I thought it was it was fun. It was scary. It was um, engrossing. And I do think that it really um, elevated the themes that I'm not sure I really uh, got you know hooked onto in the other three seasons. I thought the other three seasons were just kind of like, you know, kind of enjoyable, you know, sci-fi horror romps, comedy romps uh, with 80s nostalgia packed in. The stakes of season four were much bigger uh, and the themes were much more pronounced. These themes of, um, you know, out outsiders and insiders uh, and uh, what they're you know what, what what their roles are in in our society. Um, these you know uh, this sort of meditations on uh, you know uh, the relationship between our world and and hell um, or you know what what is what is evil. Um, you know all with the overlay of the like Cold War America Russia stuff where you know listen Reagan calls Russia an evil empire um, and the show I think kind of points out. In some places, explicitly that you know that there's an evil uh, that 
that doesn't respect boundaries or, or borders. You know, the, the 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 tensions between Russia and America are um, are trivial in in comparison, uh, and uh, and and yet you know these are the sort of like geopolitical conflicts uh, that uh, that we get wrapped up in. But the but the real fight is is with a deeper evil. Um, and so I think that that was I appreciated that you know in season three that does kind of play on this um you know red dawn you know uh um uh, World war infiltration of america um kind of thing you know I, I i was like oh they had to go there in season three when i saw it because how could you do an 80s show without that element um but here i think that they um that the duffer brothers do a good job of saying um you know this the sort of like Cold War, America versus Russia, Russia jingoism uh, that we played on in previous seasons um, actually has a, a more significant moral dimension that we want to explore in this season, and I think that they did a good good job of that. And I think we should get into some of that uh, in this in this conversation. So let's let's talk first about I think the the most significant theme of the show, which I think of, of course is a lot of Jewish. Um, aspects to it, um, which is, you know, th this place of, um, you know, who's an insider and who's an outsider and, and what that kind of um, identity does to a person. Um, yeah, the, 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 main, the main characters, right? The main characters from, from the outset are, are outsiders, right? They are seen as uh, Mike and, and Dustin and Lucas and Will. They're seen as dorky and different from the very beginning as, what are they, seventh or eighth graders at Hawkins Middle. They are bullied, um, right? That, and it's, it's Eleven who ends up helping them stand up for, for themselves. But they're bullied because um, all of Dustin's teeth have him. Uh, fully grown in and uh, they're calling um, Mike frog face or something. And, and they, they, there's uh, you forget, or I forget, actually, I shouldn't, this is my own ignorance, about the, how homophobic society was uh, in, in the eighties, right? There, there is, seems to be this underlying theme uh, from the very beginning. Will is referred to as queer as a derogatory term. Um, and it seems to suggest that uh, in, in season four, that he may be trying to come out um, uh, to, to, to Mike. Um, but, uh, but, but certainly this idea that they are seen as outsiders by society, they're seen as, as dorky. Um, and that theme goes on and on that uh, Jonathan Byers, Joyce, they're all outsiders. And then the new friends that they make, Right, Max is seen as as an as an outsider. Eddie is an outsider. Robin, right, who 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 is a closeted gay woman, is seen as an outsider. Uh, and then they're able to befriend Eleven, who is an outsider in her own rights, very different type of outsider. And they are introducing her to to society. I think that there are very deep Jewish themes to this 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 idea um, that uh, especially for Eleven. Uh, but the, this is a Jewish theme overall, right? It's coming to America, learning our ways, remaining yourself, um, while also adjusting and acculturating, dealing with your own struggles, um, and, and what role your true identity has um, while you strive to fit in and feel a sense of belonging. That's something that Lucas especially uh, struggles with this season when he... Uh, is a bench warmer the entire time for the basketball team. And, and there's almost like a, a subconscious racist joke to it all 
that he, he only really made the basketball team because he is a black boy in this mostly white town right. uh, and then ends up having the game winning shots to, to win the final game of the season, the championship game uh, and is celebrated. And he thinks, Oh, I'm going to be cool. I'm going to be cool. Uh, but that means having to throw his friends and the hellfire D and D club under the bus and is unwilling to do that. Yeah. You know, I, I, um, I, I the show, uh, you know, c- continues to call Eleven a superhero. That that really kind of begins, I think, in maybe season two or season three is the first time she's she's called that. In this season, the last episode, Argyle calls her Supergirl, um, and so there there it's really explicit that she is this kind of you know even uh, even season one, right? E- even season one, Dustin is comparing her to the X Men and Professor oh, X. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, she she is this kind of, uh, you know, Superman, Clark Kent kind of character. She even becomes adopted by Hopper, right? Who's, you know, the, the, um, the uh, Pa Kent, what's, what's uh, uh, Clark Kent's father's name? Um, um, uh, th- there's a connection. It's Martha Kent. Martha uh, and. Um, Martha Kent and Martha Wayne. I remember that. Yeah. Um, anyway, whatever. Um, so uh, this is Jonathan, Jonathan, John, Jonathan Kent. Um, uh, Henry Bernstein is going to be very upset with us for, uh, for, for not knowing this, uh, piece of Superman lore, but anyway, the, the original, uh, creators of Superman, uh, you know, uh, Schuster and Siegel two you know, uh, Jews growing up in, in, in America, um, the, uh, immigrants, the children of immigrants, right. So in a lot of ways they were, imposing um, the Jewish experience um, into uh, this uh, you know, mythological narrative of an alien coming to a new world um, and you know, uh, learning to both like live among them, uh, but also be different from them. Um, that was in you know, many ways kind of borrowed from the Torah itself, from the, from the Exodus story, from Moses, you know, kind of living among the Egyptians, uh, but not really being an Egyptian. And, and what is he, how is that going to shape him? And what is that going to do to him? Right. So Clark Kent is, you know, found in a basket in Kansas and Moses is found in the basket in the Nile and that sort of thing. Right. So there's, so that so the, all those parallels and, and, and 11 has that too, right. She is this outsider with superpowers who is discovered um, and adopted by, you know, by, by, by a human family. Um, and, and what is she going to do with those powers? Um, is she going to use them for good or is she going to use them for evil? How does she relate to her outsider identity? Um, you know, does, it, 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 and this season really kind of plays on that because you have with Henry, you, right. Henry, who is the same kind of outsider with the same kind of powers is a, um, uh, uh, out, you know, an outcast in his own family, uh, you know, uh, uh, ridiculed and and derided by his own family, and because of that, you know, uh, relates to that trauma, um, you know, by saying, okay, well, you know, what I need to do is destroy mankind because um, because uh, you know they're irredeemable. Uh, they're you know they're, he's sort of like Magneto in that way. 
um, to use another superhero analogy, right? That that you know men are are corrupt and weak, um, and, uh, and and that's why they you know relate to people who are different um, with 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 violence and, and ostracization. Um, and so what what I need to do, and Henry would then come and say, is you know wipe them all out, right? And Eleven has a different experience. They're like, no, I'm an outsider. Like they are capable of good, and we can help them be their best, right? So. So I guess, you know, to, to use a different superhero analogy, she's like uh, Charles Xavier, Professor X um, in that way. Um, that, can, that, can, you know, ahead, not, yeah. not to um, um, be so, so dark in this, um, such a dark world we're living in, but we're recording this after, you know, one of the, the latest uh, mass shootings um, in our country at a 4th of July parade and, and outside of Chicago and Highland Park, Illinois. Uh, and, and it's clear that this person, um, speaking of Henry Bernstein, I actually think he's from yeah. Park or, or some, or some such suburb. Uh, in, in and it's, it's clear that this person, um, what was, uh, you know, brainwashed, um, with, with, with hateful, rhetoric by elected officials, um, hateful rhetoric by um, um, legislators, uh, b- by politicians um, that led uh, to such violence. Uh, and again, it just goes to show you, right, the ADL says all along that hateful words lead to hateful action. Uh, and um, I, I don't mean to make the connection relationship between a terrible domestic terrorist attack and a, a, a sci-fi th- show from the eight, you know, based in the eighties. But what the show does emphasize is what you're saying is that if somebody feels uh, loneliness and social isolation, um, we have two options, right? We, we try to befriend them or we isolate them further and, um, they, they end up going down a rabbit hole. So much of the, uh, domestic terror that we see, uh, with, uh, shooters, who are guilty of mass shootings? Um, there, there's a link between social isolation and, and that. Uh, Sandy Hook Promise, the organization that was founded after the the, the new in uh, Newtown Elementary School shooting, uh, started a program for elementary school students called Start with Hello. It's simply learn how to recognize signs of loneliness and social isolation, find what you can do to help make sure others are included and say hello and and strike up a conversation so people feel a sense of belonging. And I don't mean to um, say that it's as simple as that, because this is this was a, a, a terrorist attack of hate and a deliberate attack of hate. But uh, I will say that we see not to not not to make the jump between you know a shooter and a mass shooting and you know Vecna in in a silly sci-fi you know horror show, but he chose hate and evil and violence because he was isolated and felt alone and was bullied by his family and by society. Well, listen, I think that I think that the parallels are are fair. You know, we create uh, sci-fi and we create horror. Uh, and we watch it um, because it, you know, imposes uh, our anxieties and our fears into a you know, sort of controllable, fictionalized realm. Like we can encounter them uh, in 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 a way. You know, we can encounter those things that that really terrify us. Um, you know, uh, for entertainment. I think that there's some you know deep psychology there. So I don't think it's it's unfair to draw those comparisons. And I suspect the Duffer Brothers probably had some of that in mind when they're when they're creating this work of art. And and you know, I think that of course 
one of the things that uh, is different between Vecna and you know the the shooter in Highland Park or in Uvalde or, or or where you know all these recent instances um, is that uh, you know uh, you have you know uh, outsiders who are isolated versus ones who are um, embraced. But the difference in our country, of course, is we have basically unrestricted access to you know dangerous weapons that you know can fall easily into the hands of you know people who um, uh, are outcasts and want to therefore do harm um, because of it. So that's something that we just fail, continue to fail to confront as a society. But I, but I want to say I mean, this is present in in Jewish tradition, right? So in you know in in after the Exodus, um, in while the children of Israel are in the wilderness. Um, you know, they're told, do not hate an Egyptian, um, uh, you know, uh, and we're told, you know, do not, uh, do not bear grudge, do not exact vengeance, right? The, the, the Torah understands that, you know, the experience of being an outsider, um, an oppressed out, uh, an oppressed outsider, an oppressed minority can, can easily be, tra- you know, transformed um, into uh, vengeance, into exact, you know, into, to uh, being, as oppressive um, as your oppressor was, and so it says, you know, don't take that path, right? You, you, you there, there are two different ways of relating to being an outsider. You know, one is to uh, um, internalize that isolation and want to exact pain on others, commensurate with the pain that you experience, and the other. Uh, response is to try to make sure that nobody else experiences that kind of pain um, uh, uh, themselves. And I remember uh, in the Michael Moore uh, documentary, Bowling for Columbine, Yeah. Um, there's a, there, you know, so after the Columbine shootings, um, it, you know, a very similar thing that, that you see in Stranger Things happens where, you know, where society kind of turns on goth kids um, and, and targets Marilyn Manson. Now, we now know that Marilyn Manson should have been targeted for a whole host other of reasons. reasons. Yeah. Um, so I, you know, I, I, I recognize the problematics of Marilyn Manson bringing him up in, in, in our context today, but in, in Bowling for Columbine, uh, Michael Moore interviews Marilyn Manson and he says, you know, uh, Michael Moore asked him, well, like, what would you, what would you, uh, like say to um, Claybold and, uh, and and Harris uh, now, if you could say something. And Ma- Marilyn Manson says, you know, I would I would talk to them and I would listen to them, which is more than anybody else did, right? And I thought that that was so powerful and so insightful that like that that one of the problems here is that these were that that Claybold and Harris were were um, uh, were misfit kids that like had no friends. And that was like part of their motivation for uh, exacting violence on their schools that um, is that, you know, they were, they were outcasts. Right. And so Manson saying like, like make sure that no kids feel like outcasts. Um, And like, that's what we should do rather than targeting people for their difference. Like let's bring different people into the community so that, that they know that they have community that they know they're embracing, not targeted for their difference. And I think that that there's something really, you know, I, Far be it for me right now to say that there's something very Jewish about what Marilyn Manson is saying, uh, but there, there's something I think very Jewish about that idea. Something deeply uh, embedded in the Torah about that idea is that you know an outsider can go the direction of Vecna, or it can go the direction of Eleven, right? And the Torah is trying to get outsiders to go the direction of Eleven, but one of the ways to do that is by um, is by uh, 
bringing them into the embrace of community and friends. And, and the tour also acknowledges how hard that is, right? We fail time and time again as community, right? Right. We, we, we are constantly, as we are wandering uh, through the, the barren uh, wilderness, um, we question God, we doubt God, um, we, we want to go back to slavery, that, that, that sort of thing. Uh, and uh, it acknowledges how hard it is, how hard it is to strive to do good, how hard it is to, to, to use the blessings that we have to help others and make this world better, how easy it is to be influenced by the Yetzirah Ra, by, by our own evil inclination, um, sometimes associating that with power um, and, and associating that with influence and associating that with popularity, which the show also talks about. Um, and I think it also acknowledges how difficult it is, uh, which is why also in Judaism, right, each and every day we, we, we beat our chest. We say, God, forgive us for we have sinned and transgressed. Even as we strive to be the best version of ourselves, each and every day we make mistakes and stumble along the way to try to do that. Yeah. So there's also a, a, an element of, of this season in particular where uh, they they hint at the nature of the upside down. Uh, you know, Vecna um, or, or Henry, you know, is sent there by uh, Eleven, maybe is killed. And, and what we're being shown here is, is that he's sent to hell or to the underworld. Um, well, well and- it's, it's clear, right, that the upside down is almost like this in between. Right. Because you can die there. Barb dies there. Hashtag justice for Barb. Um, Will doesn't die. There is, I think, justice for Barb in this season. Uh, Uh, Arguably four seasons later. Yeah. Um, Yeah. uh, Nancy goes in there and then goes out. Right. So it's a question now, all of a sudden in season four, they're constantly going in and out uh, in this this sort of in between um state uh it, the upside down is almost like uh shaul right uh in in tanakh in the, in the hebrew bible yeah except for you can't really go in and out of shaul you know so uh jonah uh when he's in the belly of the fish um talks about being in shaul in that uh setting but it, he's not really in Sheol, just kind of like feels like that to him. There are instances in which uh, characters from Sheol come into the, uh, to the world of the living, like Saul in, in, um, in, uh, in the book of um, Samuel. Yeah. Uh, but, but, but it's clear, right. That, that, that the Samuel Bible, actually, the Saul invokes Samuel. Right, and, yeah. Uh, the Hebrew Bible, right. Says that, that it's like this place underneath the earth's crust, Right where everyone, the evil and the righteous animals, they're indiscriminately sent there. Yes, after death, it's sort of this, this world to come of sorts, but it's a, certainly a world beyond light, right? So this dark world, um, and it's it's inhabited, but it's full of the, these dust particles, right? You know, which, which I think makes sense, yeah. this world beyond light. Um, but it does say that... Uh, any, anybody goes there, the question is, how do you get out of there, right? I know that, that Torah doesn't talk about that, but you have somebody like Vecna who uh, thrives there uh, because he is evil, and it's the righteous who find their way back out of the upside down. Yes, I, I think that that's, that's a, a good point. I mean, I think that what the show is is positing is that there is, you know, kind of like a, uh, a, a realm of 
of pure evil that's always trying to break into this world, right? Um, and, and maybe consume this world. I think that there is, especially like within Jewish mysticism, that uh, that idea exists that like that that you know evil is this sort of maybe actually a better uh, analogy to now that I think about it, the better analogy to the upside down is like tohu vavohu, right? It's like, it's it's chaos that is trying to like- What, what, the, what the world was before God's presence. Right, exactly, yeah. right. And, and the, and, you know, the, the, um, the role of, of, you know, goodness of righteousness um, is to, you know, is, is to build the world, is to, is, is to, you know, uh, make sure that that, you know, chaos, malevolence can't break through, has no space to break through. Uh, Heschel talks about this, right? That, you know, that either we make the world an altar for God, he says, an amazing essay that, that I, you know, think about all the time, uh, an essay called, it was actually a speech originally called The Meaning of This Hour. He, he I think, originally gave it in 1936 or something like that um, uh, to, a, to a meeting of Quakers in, in Germany. Right? He, but he talks in that, uh, in that speech about either, he says, e either the world is an altar for God or it's invaded by demons. Right. And, and, and I think about that all the time. Right. That there's there's really kind of like no morally neutral position. Right. There's no there's no kind of equilibrium. Like either you're advancing God's presence in the world um, or you are diminishing it. And there's no space in between. Um, you, you know, I, I think for me, the. Challenge with, with this is, is with, with the show is exactly that, that there is no space in between. It talks about these polarities of light and darkness. Um, and how sometimes we're in one or the other. The, 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 the thing that I, I want to uh, just focus on lastly this season is how the relationship between 11 and one, be, right? Between L and, and Henry uh, ends up redefining what the first three seasons were about, right? The introduction to the mind flight of the Demogorgon, et cetera, um, the upside down, even in the upside down, trying to make their way into this world. Um, and, and it reminds us that every single thing we do ha has consequences, right? There's that old Hasidic uh, story about Lashon Hara and, and speaking ill will, and you have to open up your, your pillow uh, in, in the middle of the forest and have all your feathers fly everywhere. And then you have to collect the feathers, which is impossible to do. And the whole point of the story is meant to show you that uh, once you say something, you can't take back what you've said, that it goes on and on and on. It's the butterfly effect, right? That a single act has consequences that we don't realize. And that could be for good or that could be for evil, right? For L, initially it was for good, right? She saved the day. She, she sent uh, Henry into this upside down world that Hawkins lab didn't even know existed, but it ends up causing all this evil uh, side effect and, and, and sub consequences. Um, it, it reminds me a lot of the collateral damage that we see in the Marvel cinematic universe, which other superhero films uh, and genres didn't necessarily highlight. Um, right. It's, it's at the, the, before the main fight in Avengers Endgame uh, when um, the 2014 Thanos arrives uh, to, to, to fight with the Avengers. Uh, Tony Stark says, if you, uh, when you mess with time, time tends to mess back. Uh, it, it's this idea that there are consequences for all of our actions. And, and we see that ripple effect four seasons later, uh, the consequences of sending 
Henry into the upside down. Right. But I guess the, you know, the question then is, you know, what, what other, like, would, should L have made a different choice? Could L have made a different choice in that, um, in, in that circumstance? Uh, you know, what would the consequences of that different choice uh, have been, right? I, you know, I think that like she made a decision, you know, that, uh, that, that this, that, that Henry was, that one was dangerous um, and, and needed to be destroyed. Um, and you know she she uh, you know did what she felt was was right and needed to do. Not know how how could she have known or predicted what the uh, consequences of that were? And Henry also makes a choice, right? First of all, makes a choice uh, in the lab, um, but also makes a series of choices, you know, in the in the hell that L sends him to. Um, you, you know that uh, um, so. So the so it's not as though you know the only one in this dynamic that has agency is L and her you know her agency has consequences right uh, Henry's actions also do too uh, and so that's also worth um, considering that uh, you know of course all of our actions have consequences but that doesn't necessarily mean we should hesitate taking the action that we feel is right. Um, you know, recognizing that like we're going to have to we're going to potentially have to deal with the unintended consequences of that after the fact. And so I think that that reminds us right that all of our actions have, have consequences as well. Something for us to think about. Uh, something for us to think about as we talk about building community and we see somebody on the periphery feeling like an outsider. How could we make sure that we bring them in instead of perpetuating this idea of them being an outsider and feeling like an outsider? Um, and uh, we, we know we we have a big fight coming. Uh, that that they that what is at stake? I would say the the, the future of Society certainly the future of Hawkins is at stake in uh, in season five, Stranger Things five. Mike, any predictions for for how this show will end next season? Uh, well, you know, I think that there will probably be a happy ending, um, although there will probably be casualties in that happy ending. Um, I, I don't know, you know, we, do, we still don't know Max's fate, uh, and uh, you know, there's the certainly you know the Duffers are certainly not afraid um, of you know, of, of uh, uh, having, you know, really significant and, and real consequences uh, in, in the story. Um, but, but I don't know. And I think that, you know, what I'm, what I'm coming to in this conversation is that, um, you know, there, there is, you know, there, there is going to be a, you know, sort of ultimate battle between good and evil, you know, in the words of Spaceballs, you know, good will, or good will win because evil is dumb. Um, and, uh, uh, and, uh, you know, and that I think is a, um, a, a metaphor for our own world, right? That, that, that there's always, I think, an ongoing battle of, of you know, light against dark, of, of good against evil, um, and it's and it's perpetual, right? Like, you know, dark dark doesn't rest, darkness doesn't rest, and so light can't rest, right? Um, you know, evil doesn't rest, and so good can't rest either. And what do you think? What are your predictions? I think one of the most disappointing things about this show for me, a show that I've really liked, is how few of the main characters have died, right? You get to a certain point, it doesn't feel like the stakes are real. How many times can you say the world, all right, so like Rudy, right? Sean Astin dies, like, right? Uh, right? Barb dies. Eddie Munson, right, who was just introduced this season, dies. Uh, I, I think one of the big four 
or a really big five, right? Uh, of, of six, I guess, with Max, right? Max dies and then is brought back to life. L, Max, Lucas, Will, Mike, and Dustin. I would say for the show to be worthwhile, two of those six have to die uh, in, in order for I'll, us to understand the stakes. I'll go ahead and predict that L will die. I think that's fair. That, that that's, a, that's a typical sort of uh, messianic-like uh, right. um, statement. She's gotta have to. She's gonna have to make an ultimate sacrifice. Yeah, I think I think that's fair. Well, uh, friends, uh, as you set up your 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 next campaign on your D and D tables, let us know what you thought of this season of Stranger Things and what predictions you have for the fifth and final season. Be sure to rate and review us on on wherever you listen to podcasts and subscribe. Until next time, I'm Rabbi Jesse Olitsky. And your time is up, Max. I'm Rabbi Michael Knopf. That's pretty good. Yeah, thank you. I'm working on it. Take care, everyone. <laughs>